0: It is hard to believe we have been having in-depth conversations about movies since 2011. You are
1: telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that
0: we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
1: Season 5 had some great adaptations, like our Meryl Streep Oscar-nominated performances series. We covered adaptations like Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The French Lieutenant's Woman.
0: It's a real Sophie's Choice between those books. (laughs) You see what I I did there? Uh, Yeah. Uh,
1: And I don't think it's quite at the level of a real Sophie's Choice.
0: We also did Snowpiercer for our Bong Joon-ho series, adapted from the French graphic novel Le Transpressionnage. Man, I love that movie.
1: We had our two-part 1939 series that included adaptations like Gone with the Wind, Ninotchka, The Women, and The
0: Hound of the Baskervilles. A number of those 1939 movies, like Goodbye Mr. Chips, also tied into our recent 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominee series.
1: Our naughty children horror series had creepy adaptations like The Bad Seed, Village of the
0: Damned, The Innocents, and Children of the Corn. For our Hayao Miyazaki series, we talked about his take on Lupin III with The Castle of Cagliostro, plus his own The Wind Rises.
1: Some great listener choice picks, too. Viridiana and The Great Escape.
0: And for our David Mamet Wright series, The Verdict, The Untouchables, and Glengarry Glen Ross.
1: Plus, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from our Shane Black series adapted from Brett Halliday's novel, Bodies Are Where You Find Them.
0: Dive into the sources for all of these at thenextreel.com slash originals.
1: Every book you buy helps support the show. Check out thenextreel.com slash originals today and find your next read.
0: I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends
1: And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at
0: thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show.
1: Happy vacation. Yeah. We're vacationing right now.
0: Right in the middle of it. What are you doing right now?
1: I don't know. What, when does this show go live? June 30th, I'm on my, believe it or not, Pete, right now, this second that this show is getting uh, put out there, I am driving to Monument Valley, where I'm going to spend several days, I'm going to hunt for pony prizes, because we have talked about several films the past year that have actually shot up in Monument Valley Yes, we have we're going to be uh trying to avoid the heat as much as possible but uh yeah that's that's kind of the uh, isn't initial Is not Monument
0: is it Monument Valley actually hotter than where you live?
1: <laughs> it's it's a higher elevation so it's it's not hotter it's actually cooler um but you know cooler than 120 isn't going to be that much cooler No that's awful. <laughs> It'll only be 110. Oh god. So see? <laughs>
0: Uh, I'm getting out of the heat. <laughs> <that's>... <laughs> well, let's see, what am I doing as this goes live? I am, uh, let's see, it'll be uh, 6 a.m., 9 a.m. Uh, I'll likely be sitting on a porch under some trees with coffee and a newspaper, and I will be watching passersby. As they, they cross the street, it will be a very a sort of like Wobegon kind of an experience. That's what I'll be doing actively at that point.
1: And, and considering your comments, um, I can't remember if it was last week or the week before, about <laughs> Dead Tree books, are you looking at an actual newspaper? No, no, no. Or is this no, a iPad. Kindle newspaper? <laughs> a okay, iPad. Or an iPad newspaper? Yeah, right?
0: no, they, they actually have taken to repubs. This is a little community where uh-huh. I will be, and they actually republished the entire newspaper on, like, Tumblr or something. I mean, it's like, I, I read the whole thing on Tumblr while I'm there. It's very funny. Nice. No, but it's, you're right. I need to use words, because they already have meanings, and newspaper is not the right one. I will be yeah. reading the news from Lake Chautauqua. There you go. Yeah. That's better. No, on Tumblr.
1: Got to watch these uh, phrases that we have.
0: I do. Words words matter, like newspaper. All the bacteria, the viruses. <laughs> diseases you can catch from it awful Andy Uh. it's just it's chronic (laughs) oh I don't have any news let's tell the people where we're from
1: where are we from
0: This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there's Andy Nelson. Hey! And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the second in our 2016 Vacation Challenge with Stanley Kubrick's 1964 end-of-the-world satire, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. Uh, we got a little bit of, uh, we don't have any uh, follow-up follow-up because of our vacation.
1: Yeah, there's no uh, there's no guest in the movies right now. I think uh, Games Master Stephen Smart's going to give us uh, fill us in on all the weeks we've missed uh,
0: when we all get back. That is true, and uh, we're a little bit behind on the blot spot, too. Uh, but we will uh, we will catch all those up uh, when we when we're back in the saddle. However, we did get a fantastic email. Oh yes, would you like to share the email, Andy?
1: We got a great email from Andre Leonichescu. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but I hope so.
0: Sounds great to me. It to sounds, my ear, <laughs> it sounds it's good. Perfect.
1: If I said it wrong, I know he's like that's how I want to say it. <laughs> that's that's how you're the worst. <laughs> No, it was, a, it was a really great uh, email about uh, the movie Force Majeure, which we had actually as a listener's choice, um, was it last year? Yes, it was, I, th- Yes, yes it, was, it, was. it was early last year. And uh, just kind of talking about that and some of the thoughts that he had as he watched it, kind of comparing and contrasting with some of the thoughts that we had. A lot of great uh, points that you brought up in your email, Andre. I think there's a lot of interesting things to think about with that film, and I definitely like the... Uh, the um, the way you're kind of depicting the final scene as kind of the, the hilarious caricature of the rest of the film, um, where it's not necessarily a, a chance for them to kind of uh, switch roles, so to speak. And I, I think that's it's pretty interesting. I actually am kind of curious to watch that film again and kind of look at it that way and see. Uh, but yes, I, I think that you may be right. The inevitable divorce may be happening shortly after this family arrives back home.
0: (laughs) Have you? Did you ever watch that movie twice, or did you just watch it before the thing? And then, like, have you seen it multiple times since?
1: No, I've seen it just the once. Yeah, me too.
0: That this actually is prompting me to watch it again and uh, and see. I uh, because you're you're right. I mean, my hindsight now, uh, gifted by his uh, reminder, is is subtly changing my opinion on the film. I definitely need to pull this one back out.
1: Yeah. Also, and just like how he comments about how detached the camera is in points like when um, when Tomas is crying hysterically, and yeah, uh, right, but is completely unemotional about it. Um, just some interesting little uh, filmmaking techniques like that that go into that film. Definitely something that uh, might be worth a look again.
0: I agree. But before that, Andy, let's do trailers. <laughs>
1: So so my trailer is for a film called Anthropoid, which I clicked on thinking, oh, this should be an interesting little sci-fi film. (laughs) Boy, was I wrong. You dummy. I am a dummy. But, you know, I had never heard of this. This is actually based on the extraordinary true story of Operation Anthropoid. Why they named it that, I hope they answer the film because it's, (laughs) it's the strangest name. This was a World War II mission to assassinate... SS General Reinhard Heydrich, the main architect behind the final solution and the Reich's third in command after Hitler and Himmler. Um, I had never heard of this, uh, this um, true story. And I was kind of really intrigued by it. And I don't know if it's just because we've been talking about so many World War II films um, in the last month or two, Um, but this just really piqued my curiosity. I got really excited about the whole idea – um, I love kind of spy movies when they have to go after something, especially when it's a big thing like this. And I love seeing Killian Murphy. I think that he's just a, a fascinating actor to watch. So this really got me excited. This is a film directed by Sean Ellis, written by uh, Ellis, a- along with Anthony Fruin. Um, Sean Ellis, I don't really think... Actually, I take it back. I saw Sean Ellis's short film, Cashback, which was, I believe... Oscar nominated short film or perhaps it was like of the indie awards mm. I cannot remember but I know I saw his short I know he made a feature of it I heard it was not as good as the short I did enjoy the short quite a bit um, and then I know that he has done other things since then like uh, the broken which um, I just remember the poster and that's all but He's one of those directors who has uh, kind of created um, a career for himself out of doing some shorts and uh, got some acclaim. And now here he is with this really interesting true story based on this World War II thing uh, that I want to see. Like I said, Killian Murphy's in it. And Toby Jones, along with a bunch of other people I'm not familiar with. Jamie Dornan, Harry Lloyd, uh, Charlotte Le Bon, Bill Milner, more and more and more. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm curious about this one. What do you think?
0: Well, I, you know, I, Killian Murphy, absolutely, I'm in to Killian Murphy. I think he is fantastic. Um, and and actually, I don't know. Interestingly, uh, Jamie Dornan, well, I'm curious about him
1: to see if he can do something other than yes. Fifty Shades. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, that I is guess. exactly it. <laughs>
0: Uh, because it feels like he should be able to do that, it really does, and uh, and so you know I'm I'm absolutely um, looking forward to to checking this out. It looks like a really compelling story. You're right; I am absolutely resonating with this film, and I think it is because of all these World War II stories, uh, and and amusingly that we would come back to World War II connections with the movie we're talking about today. Uh, I think is is um, it's, I, I can't shake it. So, uh, yeah, bring it on. I'm in. When's it come out?
1: Yeah, it looks very interesting. This one is going to be released um, August 12th here in the U.S. And, uh, I, you know, I have a feeling it's not going to be a big release. Um, no other release dates yet other than the Czech Republic when uh, it will be playing July 1st at the Karlovy Vary International Film Festival. Um, so I'm curious to see how this one does. I have a feeling it will be a small release, but definitely something I want to see.
0: My trailer, Andy, is Outlaws and Angels. This is a Western drama thriller that played at Sundance. Um, and uh I I think it I think it met pretty good reviews there. I've I haven't seen bad ones yet, but I haven't looked all that hard. Uh what I can tell you is currently on IMDB, it's a 7.4. Uh I watched the first uh, I don't know, 45 seconds of the trailer, and I thought, eh. You know, I mean, J.T. Molnar directs, writer directs. I don't know much from J.T. Molnar. He's in a bunch of shorts. Uh, this is his fir- first big feature, as far as I can tell. Stars Chad Michael Murray from, you know, One Tree Hill. And um, and uh, let's see, he's done some other stuff, I-, I think, that is more interesting. He's actually most recently on Agent Carter. Uh, he plays Jack Thompson on Agent Carter, if his name doesn't immediately ring a bell. um, But uh, Terry Polo and... um. Uh, uh Luke Wilson uh is in this film um and and so like i, I was just kind of middling uh until Francesca Eastwood comes up right and uh-huh. i don't know much from her apart from her you know her parentage family yeah uh and uh, you know i w- i know she was in she's she's had bit parts in things like uh, Jersey Boys and and uh, you know she was in uh, Twin Peaks, uh, the TV series that's that's coming back out in 2017. So, she, I mean, she's she's got a bunch of credits. Uh, but then I saw, you see her in this movie, and she does the old Stockholm Syndrome turnabout and falls in love with the bad Western guys who are raiding her family's house. And, man, she goes dark fast. And I was in it. I was totally in it. Once, once I saw that, that then the the whole trailer took a completely new tone, and I was uh, I was suddenly stoked to see this movie. Did that? Did the, did it have the same effect on you? It did not. Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> no. I
1: it looked pretty bad from the beginning, and her character changed for me, at least the way it was depicted in the trailer. I totally just was rolling my eyes at. And I was Were like, you really? Oh, oh so no. So cheesy, so cheesy. <laughs> it just looks so terrible. So I wasn't convinced by this trailer. Maybe the movie uh, will do better than the trailer did for me. I mean, it is at a 7.4. But yeah, as it, as it stood when I watched it, I didn't buy into it.
0: Well, I hope it changes your mind. I hope it changes my mind because I'm I am with you. Like if if this is the only anchor that I have, then I, I'm a little bit worried about it. But uh, I am looking forward to seeing Francesca Eastwood in this film. No wide release dates. I see limited July 16th this summer. Uh, so check your local listings. Probably New York and L.A. Um, and we'll see. It did play in Sundance in January, so um, you know, it doesn't seem like there's been a huge scramble to get this picked up in wide release. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, which is worrying. But I thought it looked cool. Andy's definitely a thumbs down. What are you going to do? <laughs> I don't know, Andy. You're going to have to answer to the Coca-Cola company. Blast off! where's my shorts Ah! where's the bathroom Box, should i get it on the hotline doctor strange love
1: or how i learned to stop worrying and love the
0: bomb a moving (laughs) picture doctor strange love andrew how i learned to stop worrying and love the bomb uh this is stanley kubrick from 1964 and this was your pick for our vacation challenge why was that you tasked me with finding something that, or actually, particularly
1: picking my favorite end of the world, uh, dystopian future, uh, post apocalyptic comedy. This and so, a, this is a little cheat. It it is, but you know, it is about the end of the world.
0: It's it's you would classify this maybe as a pre apocalyptic pre apocalyptic. Yeah, but end it is if, comedy.
1: But if you're calling it an end of the world comedy, I mean, it, you know, it is a comedy about the end of the world. I think it fits. It's not uh I mean, this is about, you know, it's a it's a comedy about how the world ends, I guess. It's <laughs> a it's not, a process yeah. piece. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I I think it's absolutely it absolutely fits and uh why tell me uh, give me your your initial uh feedback here. How did you uh, how did this hit for you? This was a film that my uh, second year
1: film uh, film production teacher showed us in film class. Uh, you know, because you know, every now and then they do that when you're in production. They they'll stop class and just watch something, and that was kind of fun. And this was one of those movies where I don't think anybody in the class really got it. <laughs> <laughs> But the but my professor was just sitting in the back, just snickering through the whole thing, and I, you know, and and it's one of those movies that I watched. I was like, well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, it it was kind of funny. It was weird the way it ended. Like, I didn't I didn't click with it at first.
0: How long did it take to click for you? Like, and I mean, on the scale of years,
1: it it really wasn't that many. I I think that um, within the next couple of years of film school. Um, you know, in my my senior thesis project was on Kubrick. I had really kind of gone back and studied every one of his films uh, for that particular project, and I I think in the process of all of that, uh, I started kind of getting it. And I and well, and plus, you know, when you're hanging out with film students, you know, you're always trying to be erudite and talking about really hoity-toity things yeah. in film. And I know that there was somebody that I was talking with who I worked with who was into film and this, you know, he would always say, Oh, you've got to rewatch this and look at this and check this out and watch this. And so I, I rented it and watched it again. And I think it, it took a few times for me to really click with the comedy in this film before I really was getting it. And before I was finding so much of the humor in it. And now, um, I mean, it, it was pretty short after that where i it was something that I really enjoyed now I watch it again, and I just honestly I feel like my film professor now just like snickering in the back of the room, yeah because i I can't stop laughing when I watch this. It's like every single thing is so funny, and i I just feel that in the process of trying to uh make a film about his own personal fears of of kind of nuclear Holocaust and the state of the world at the time, I think Kubrick really found the right way to tell the story and, and his, his decision to go satire rather than serious, I think ended up allowing him to, um, to make something that poked fun at it in a way that I think made it more uh, impactful. And so Uh, Yeah. I mean, now I just watch this film and I think it's so funny and so biting. And I I think what's interesting is to kind of reflect on this film and think and put it in context of the time when it came out in early 64, when the Cold War was not something people laughed at. It was a very serious thing. And the fact that this movie was out there that was just like, it was this this comedic um, joke about... About what nuclear holocaust was, Um, I mean, I think that it was just so so brave and so ahead of his time to actually make something like this. Um, It's like somebody now making a film about, I mean, and and I really mean no disrespect, but making a, a satire on like the state of the U.S. and its policies on gun control. You know, it's it's that sort of thing where it would be really, I think there would be a lot of eyes raised. Um, about if somebody did something like that.
0: Well, it's like Fritz Lang and making, you know, Manhunt in 1940s. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, right. It is a very similar thing. Those the dealing with very uh, high Correct. energy contemporary issues, cultural issues, yeah. uh, and doing with it. And and you know what's what I find so interesting about this? I I didn't know that it was originally intended to be a serious film. I didn't know that Kubrick had become absolutely obsessed with nuclear armament. And had been digesting these, you know, books about the darkest, darkest trouble that comes with nuclear weaponry. I, I didn't know any of that. I didn't know that the original film was titled The Delicate Balance of Terror, which I wouldn't have wanted to see. <laughs> That's uh, terrible. It sounds just awful. Uh, but, uh, you know, I heard this this uh, a quote from one of his contemporaries who who was working with him on the film and said, uh, you know, we, we kept going back and forth saying, you know, if you find out that the bomb has been dropped and you're in an office, the film's a documentary. If you find out the bomb's been dropped and you're in a living room, then it's a drama. But if you find out that the bomb's been dropped and you're in a bathroom, it's a comedy. And they went with that. And I think that was an absolutely brilliant, brilliant choice. And and uh, it was just perfect. I haven't seen the movie in years and years and years. Uh, and, I, you know, I think I had made the turn uh, that it was funny by the time I'd last seen it. I remember it as a funny movie. I don't remember it as this funny. I don't remember Peter Siller, Sellers' straight man president as being as absolutely drop-dead funny uh, as he was uh, in this film. I didn't remember uh, uh, the uh, George C. Scott being as insanely funny as he was in this film. It, so much of it uh, just had me rolling. Uh, it was a, a great pick, and yes, the world ends, thus you win.
1: <laughs> and it's just so, it's one of those movies that you you keep picking up on things yes. as you watch it over and over again. And I mean, I read uh, Roger Ebert's review before I watched it, um, again, in his uh, great movies series of reviews. And he really kind of fixated on George C. Scott's face. And so I ended up fixating on George C. Scott's face as I watched it. and. He is not wrong in any way at all. George C. Scott was like his, what he is doing and how he reacts and every little thing that he's doing with his face is just so flippin' funny. Just every little move. And I know that, uh, you know, he had done, he was trying to do a little more serious and I, the way that, uh, that I heard it is that um, he would do a couple serious takes and then Kubrick would say, okay, now do one really over the top. Uh, just, you know, just let us play around with it. And Kubrick ended up using all the takes that were really over the top, and I guess that uh, I don't think that Scott was necessarily thrilled that he made made him (laughs) look so buffoonish. But in context
0: of the film, I think that's exactly what the film needed. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, I'd like to think that George G. Scott has some... Hindsight that uh, the way he portrayed the the character quite naturally as a, a child, essentially as a stubborn, stewing, spoiled child, uh, I, I think ends up making the film that much better. I, I I was disappointed to learn that he was frustrated with Kubrick, but I also know that Kubrick's a tough guy to work with.
1: Yeah, and, and as is Scott, and you know he um, Kubrick had to really kind of in order to kind of gain Scott's respect in the as they began this process. Um, had to figure out a way to kind of get that respect from Scott. And so he pulled out his chessboard. Anybody who knows anything about Kubrick, he was a master chessman. I mean, he just always was playing chess. And so he and Scott were always playing chess when they had uh, time to do so. I mean, it kind of had a board set up. And Kubrick won almost every single time. And so that actually kind of helped Scott kind of gain his respect and start kind of uh, you know really tuning in to what Kubrick was saying and, and wanting him to do
0: as a uh, as the the Kubrick historian here apparently uh do you want to uh w- walk people through who for those who haven't seen the film in some time uh the just the general uh uh stream of events that make this film uh, what it is yeah
1: um sure uh general jack d ripper uh fantastically played by um sterling Hayden um he uh he sends out a code which is a uh, the code for plan r to uh to his uh his all of his air force planes that are flying they're all in the safe zone just 2 hours outside their strike zones in russia he sends this this code out which basically says hey the us has been attacked drop your bombs and uh, you know let's get world war 3 started and um so we focus on one plane headed up by uh, Kong and Kong, who is uh played by Slim Pickens, Major Kong, he um he takes his plane and, and heads to do exactly what he's told. Uh, meanwhile the president and all of his people uh find out that this plan has been uh taken by uh by ripper and so they one try to stop ripper and two try to stop these planes and i guess you could just say hilarity ensues on all ends and and because of uh you know things that happen uh, in the plane they end up this particular plane ends up not getting called back and uh, in the end starting world war three
0: the, uh, the film is, uh, if you can't tell, it's very much Cold War satire. It is, uh, it, it is funny and dark and really grim. It is all about sex. This movie. It is all about the sex. (laughs) It is. It connects war and sex in ways that very few films can do successfully. From just the giant guns, the way the 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 way Sterling Hayden uh, holds his giant gun uh, to the aerial refueling scenes of this B B fifty two, and the music that is played. The the absolute. A uh, uh, sex symphony that is played when the planes are flying and refueling. <laughs> uh, to Sterling Hayden's whole mentality or his whole mission is to stop the uh, the Russians from you know cultivating from fluoridating our water uh, to to poison our precious bodily fluids over and over with the precious bodily fluids. All of these things uh, end up uh, you know connecting. War and sex and ego and id in in ways that just make for a really funny uh, experience. Uh, Not was- to
1: mention that there is a a you know essentially the doomsday device is triggered by what you could call a nuclear orgasm. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes, Slim Pickens uh, riding it all the way, as they say. <laughs> uh the it's a it's a fascinating thing and this film was so impactful it was so powerful in fact in the cultural gestalt of the time that when reagan was elected he asked to see the war room sure that the war room existed because he saw it in dr strangelove in fact it did not
1: it is just brilliant. Um yeah, it's Stanley Kubrick wrote this. He he bought the rights for the book based um it was Peter George's book who actually wrote it under the pseudonym Peter Bryant. Um Kubrick read it and bought the rights to the book. He thought that Terry Southern, who had just written a book called Candy, would be a perfect person to bring on board because that film, I guess I I didn't look it up at all to to get any research on it, but I, my understanding is it was rather kind of uh, I, I guess it was kind of a Lolita type of book for the time. And so Kubrick thought that, that would be a perfect person to bring on to kind of help write this. So between the two of them, along with Peter George, they kind of wrote this script. And, uh, you know, I think that Kubrick had said something like, what's the most outrageous thing a person can say while still seeming credible? And that was kind of the, the motivation that they had once they decided to go with the satire route everything from just the scope of the these different parts of the story as they all kind of work together to tr- try to stop this bomb or try to keep it from ha- or try to keep it happening like uh, like um ripper is doing um uh, also there's these little moments like the reveal that uh when Turgeson gets the phone call and he's you know he has his uh, secretary uh Miss Scott in uh, you know kind of sitting there in bed and they're they're chatting and I don't know, it's just there's something really funny about the fact that they're having this conversation, and then they reveal later that it's 3 a.m., and they're just like wide awake, and it just seems like it's, you know, 5 p.m. It's just, it's it's really interesting. It's just a small little thing, but it's just like, I don't know why I found it so interesting that that was like, it was a 3 a.m. phone call, and here they are just kind of doing their thing, like, what did they just finish in this room, you know?
0: <laughs> well, once again, <laughs> I think we know what they just finished. Right, Exactly. <laughs> uh yeah it is it's really beautiful and and the uh, the level of just sort of production sarcasm uh that that the military slogan is peace is our profession is on these signs everywhere Perhaps. uh ends up being just again really sadistically uh, delightful reveals uh kubrick is a director um oh, how do you think this film represents his work but frankly uh, i i don't know that i've laughed at many other kubrick films
1: I don't know if he's really tried to make any many other films that you laugh at. I mean, there might be some moments in like Full Metal Jacket in the training where, you know, there are some funny elements. But yeah, I mean, he's he's kind of done a bunch of genres. Uh, you know, the heist film, this, the horror, the war, uh, the, the space opera. You know, I, I don't think he's done much more in the way of comedy. I wished kind of that he did because i think that this is just almost a perfect comedy it's so funny um but you definitely do see stuff of kubrick in here his crash zooms that he's always kind of loved even all the way up through um, eyes wide shut he still was using those and you know most people considered zooms out of fashion but somehow kubrick did it in a way that still seemed uh like it fit um I, I didn't see any, he you know, starting with kind of 2001, he really got that um, idea where he would center something in the shot and it would be kind of your center of focus. And it was like perfectly framed in a way that it was, it was uh, just, you know, everything about it was just a, you know, a mirror of itself. It was beautiful frames. Um, he doesn't do that so much here or kind of in, in his earlier films that I recall, Um, Although I I think you could say that maybe in the war room, like the wide shots when you're kind of looking over the table, that might be it. But uh, yeah, I mean, there definitely are moments that feel very Kubrickian here. Uh, And obviously, I mean, I think that his just kind of dark, dark take on the world, I think, comes across pretty nicely.
0: You know, what's the most Kubrickian about this whole experience is the trailer of this film, which is mm. absolutely out of character from the experience of watching the film, I find that a riot. Did you have you watched the trailer recently?
1: The, I haven't watched it recently, but I know that he had Pablo Ferro do the trailers and all the TV spots, and yes. Pablo Ferro did the title design, and uh, it has that um, very much that same feel. Um, I saw clips of it, and I uh, there's something about that style that I think. Um, you know it really makes it stand out i'd love to see somebody do a trailer like that nowadays
0: oh yeah well it, you know one of the it, it's a terrible trailer well we, by, by the time we're talking about this the trailer will have already played or at least a part of it on this very show and it's a terrible trailer for podcasts because <laughs> it 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 it, uh, it actually uh, intercuts uh, very fast cuts of uh, of sequences from the film with titles that are it, they're like posing questions what would happen if the if the bomb dropped and then it cuts to uh just a like a one word response from somebody in the cast like uh, the president saying oh right? right something like that and it and so it it feels really just sort of staccato very kubrickian to me i mean it really is is kind of emotionally engaging and kind of frightening uh and not very funny um, overall, it's more sort of, um, uh, sensor, sensorally offensive, um, but, uh, but a, a pretty powerful, t- uh, trailer experience. I, yeah, i almost want to surprised. watch it rather than just listen to yeah, it. Yeah, you really do. So, you know, hit the link and go, go actually watch it because it's not, it doesn't do justice to how cool it was cut together. First shot, last shot.
1: The first shot of this film is, uh, a, just really kind of a cloudy fog shrouding the black mountain tops of Zokov Islands in the uh, below the Arctic peaks uh, of the Zokoff Islands um where, as we learn from the voiceover that accompanies it, this is where the Russians have built their doomsday device. So we get this great first shot of just kind of this, you know, an aerial shot as we look at this, uh, the mountaintops uh, surrounded by fog. And then, of course, the last shot is really just, you know, a whole series of nuclear explosions as the world is destroyed. Um, I think it sets up kind of the doomsday device uh, pretty effectively. And I think... What's nice about that first shot is it's so um, uh, not connected. It feels so disconnected to the world, you know. It's just the, it's clouds and a, and a mountaintop poking out. So you really don't ever feel um, like it, it, I don't know. I guess it just kind of ends up creating this this disconnected mystery of it.
0: Yeah, I think so. And and it's uh, it it ends up being just a really kind of beautiful sandwich of of doom. Uh and um, and and done in such a way that sort of celebrates the journey that you go on through this film that it starts in, in kind of a the shrouding black mountain stuff, but it's very it's sort of natural uh and then it ends with all of these things just being destroyed I think it's a a fancy um, a fancy way to say you you know you're done for
1: it ends with dooms doomsday and um yeah it, it's interesting because we don't learn about the doomsday de- device till midway through. Um, in the context of the film it's only right. because it's been set up for us at the beginning so in a sense we're kind of like ahead of all these americans we know that it exists uh, before they do
0: the one thing i found really uh, amusing is that the last shot could have been uh this massive cream pie fight in the war room and i wouldn't have believed it had you just told me that had i not seen stills of them shooting this sequence a giant cream pie fight um and uh that that ended up being cut because it was the cast was laughing too hard. That's the word I understand. And and yeah, that it, it was just too straight up funny.
1: I think that Kubrick intended on it essentially being kind of a a, a, a mini nuclear armageddon right a metaphor for what's
0: going on outside
1: exactly but unfortunately the actors couldn't stop laughing kubrick's whole design with this was that nobody would be laughing they would all be doing it a hundred percent seriously as if they're really fighting a war with these pies unfortunately everybody just laughing too much yeah i mean yeah, they're getting pie in the face
0: right right bridge too far on the on the you know the straight man trope Yes. Uh, I did, you know, we didn't mention the disclaimer at the beginning of the film. Right. Uh, which I think is uh, is also, it, I, I don't know, for me, it sets up the comedy, which is, I don't know if it was serious, right? The, the disclaimer says uh, something in the effect of it's the stated position of the Air Force that. Uh, that their safeguards would prevent the occurrence of such events as they're depicted in this film. Is that roughly it?
1: Uh, Yeah, it says, um, "...it is the stated position of the U.S. Air Force that their safeguards would prevent the occurrence of such events as are depicted in this film. Furthermore, it should be noted that none of the characters portrayed in the film are meant to represent any real persons living or dead." It made me wonder when I saw that, um, because we have that, I mean, not quite the bit, first part, but certainly the last part, at the end of films now. Yes. I haven't done any research on, on like when it started, but watching this at the beginning of the film made me wonder if this kind of kicked that
0: off. It's you know, It, it really is. It comes off to me once you see the film, it, like they can't be serious.
1: Well, I mean, the Air Force said, you know, there is no way that this could ever happen. We have too many things in place that would never allow this to actually be the case. Now, we know that is not true. We know, and, and I guess this kind of goes to that whole plan R, there really were things like this that could have gone drastically wrong and really ended up just like this film it, Film ends. And, uh, luckily, it never actually happened. But, yeah, they had these things set up where, you know, if the president isn't around... Or the they can't reach him. That somebody else can can you know start the war, set the bombs off, and all Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. They had all these things out there. Um, At the time, nobody was saying it, but now it's it's we know that, and so it puts it in a different context now because now we know that Air Force was lying about (laughs) saying that gallows humor, gallows humor, right? Exactly. It's very dark.
0: Uh, Peter Sellers is uh, noted in this film because he's once again playing multiple. Characters. That's kind of his shtick by now.
1: Well, and certainly, I mean, he had just done it with uh, Kubrick right before this um, with Lolita, right. where, where he uh, did play um, uh, Quilty. He plays Quilty, but Quilty kind of, it's almost like Quilty disguises himself as other people. Or not as other people, but, but there are points where you have Peter Sellers in the film, but you're not supposed to realize that it's Claire Quilty. Mm-hmm. At least Humbert. Humbert doesn't realize that it's right. Claire Quilty.
0: Right. Uh, so he comes back uh, to, work with, um, to work with Kubrick again in this film, playing what was originally targeted to be four characters. Uh, he ended up playing three, President Merkin Muffley, Group Captain Lionel Mandrake, and Dr. Strangelove. Uh, what's your what is the significance before we look at each of these characters? President of the United States, President Merkin Muffley, Group Captain Lionel Mandrake. He's the exo of uh of. Well, he's the RAF officer who he's right.
1: like a. It's on like an exchange. He's program. like the liaison,
0: right? Right. He works with um with uh, with Ripper. Ripper, and uh, Doctor Strangelove is the uh, we believe the. Uh, Operation Paperclip Recruit, the former Nazi who was recruited by the uh, OSS after the war uh, for his scientific expertise to work for the U.S. military.
1: Yeah, I don't know if there's significance in what they chose for him other than uh, those were some pretty great roles, pretty good opportunities for sellers to kind of lend his comedic stylings. Um, He was also supposed to play Major Kong, um, and, uh, that didn't work out. He was, um, I, I, what I heard is that he just, he had a hard time getting the Southern accent and he kind of felt like he was already in it too much. And, um, and then he and Kubrick were in a fight and he fell, he was on the B-52 set and fell off and broke his leg. And which is kind of why Strange Love ended up uh, in a wheelchair <laughs> is, is my understanding.
0: <laughs> no, mine too. I, I think that is actually brilliant because what is what uh, what I heard is that not only he had an a, an extreme difficulty getting the the uh, uh, getting the accent right, the Southern drawl of Kong, but he did get it and he got it yeah. to everybody's satisfaction and he sounded fantastic. And then he got in a fight and fell fifteen feet off the set to break his leg. Which is, you know, that that is literally adding injury to insult. <laughs> right. It's just horrible. <laughs> it's just awful.
1: It is horrible. I I really am glad he didn't end up playing Kong, though. I mean, it would be interesting to see, but uh, maybe it's just in, in retrospect. I think that uh, Slim Pickens, you know, casting somebody who is so perfectly just already the cowboy uh, was so great. I mean, Kubrick actually said, you know, I couldn't replace... Sellers with any other actor it had to be with a real person and slim ended up being that real person I mean he was that cowboy when he came walking onto the set in England all the Brits were like oh well he already got his costume and everything without realizing that no that's just how slim Pickens dresses <laughs> he just uh, looks that way almost as if he just got off his horse out in their parking lot. Um, but uh, yeah I mean Peter Sellers I and mean, we've talked about him before on being there which is yep. just a brilliant brilliant film and he's done a lot of just great roles, um, not always great films, but certainly great roles. I there's such a great blend of these characters. I mean, Merkin Muffley uh, was supposed to be funny initially, um, but but everybody was laughing too much, and so they kind of toned it down and went serious, which I think was really smart. I think that the way Merkin Muffley is now is just perfect, and his conversation, which is almost all improv. When he has the 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 one sided conversation with uh, with uh, Dmitri over in Russia is just one of the funniest things, and I could just listen to that on repeat because it's just like a perfect perfect conversation. It's so good.
0: I I can too. And it was you know this the level of improvisation that he uh, that he undertook for this film. Uh, you know, at just about every scene he would read the first line from the script. And then he would just go, and Kubrick just let him go, and it created a lot of this retro scripting, right? Where they went back and they re- they transcribed everything that he said to put it in the in the script for, uh, for lore and for editing, and and um, uh, it, it ended up just being perfect. the The symbolism of the names, <laughs> I, <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, they all have some sort of a symbol, and maybe I read too far into some of them. But President Merkin Muffley is not even much of a symbol. It's just you know Merkin. Uh, the The pubic wig the uh the, the alliteration or the uh, allusion to um, to sex and sexuality uh, sort of begins in the highest office i guess um, right and uh, and that 's it so uh you, you the the character is uh, well you 're right, it was initially played as funny uh, he ended up being modeled after um, Adelaide Stevenson, uh, and you can really see it in his conversations around the giant table um as as just the complete stoic he, when he's not funny he comes off as a true politician and it ends up being a, a really terrific part. Uh, Lionel Mandrake? I couldn't I couldn't figure out that much. Mandrake uh, from the old English man plus dragon it was drake it was dragon in old English. I that's pretty much as far as I got.
1: Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I know it's a plant or a root Yeah, uh, yeah. you know other than that I, I don't know. It's yeah, a nightshade. Yeah, I don't know too much else about it, but um, I, I didn't look into that too much, but it's, um, I, I like this particular character and something that really kind of stuck out for me this time on this watch was just watching Mandrake's face as he kind of has this realization that Ripper has gone mad and you get to kind of watch him as he kind of puts two and two together as he's talking to him and realizes like, oh, I got to figure out what I'm going to do here. <laughs> Cause this guy's clearly <laughs> off his rocker. Uh, it's just so good, and it's just brilliant to see kind of how he plays that. It's so interesting to watch how he plays these three characters. They're so different. And, I mean, Strangelove, of course, whose real name, and I don't know if this is the first time I've caught her. or this is the first time that I've really paid attention, but as they reveal in the film, his real name is Gliebe.
0: Is <laughs> <laughs> which which I believe literally translates to strange Love.
1: Does it? Yes. Oh, that's so funny. A kraut by any other name.
0: <laughs> there are some really good ones. Uh, they, the, his responses to, as Mandrake to some of Ripper's comments are fantastic. Mandrake, have you ever seen a commie drink a glass of water? <laughs> well, uh, no, no, sir. I can't say that I have. <laughs> <laughs> I consider, consider myself a real water man.
1: <laughs> oh, it's like a, there's a string in my leg. It's, it's just... God, not, not, whatever he's saying. And I know that that whole string bit, he yeah. had no intention of actually saying it, but <laughs> but ended up saying it. And he and Kubrick were trying so hard not to laugh, but it worked so well that they kept it in there. And, <laughs> oh, it's just it's so funny. It
0: is just perfect. And, uh, you know, equally perfect, the strange love, who ironically is not in the film all that often.
1: No, he kind of pops up weirdly like midway through when, when the president calls for him and he just happens to be sitting there... <laughs> Which in it in and of itself, I think, is really funny—the fact that Strange Love just happens to be there, and the the introduction is so abrupt.
0: Yes, it really is, and and then some of the most dramatic shots of any single character in the film are of the you know 15 minutes of total screen time that that uh, Strange gets, if that. Yeah,
1: if that, right? Um, but it, he's he like the the brilliance of having this character who's like. He's in a wheelchair, and you know this is what we've talked about with Lang. I mean, there's so many elements of him that I feel like uh, Kubrick pulled from the Doctor in Metropolis, and from you know these different characters that we had seen in some of the Lang films.
0: Oh, spies! What's his name in Spies? Uh, yeah, right, yeah. right.
1: Um, and and how he, you know, just this this glove that almost has a life of its own and tries to strangle him, and is always you know doing the Heil Hitler salute. It's. I mean, it's. It just doesn't make any sense that these people have him here as their advisor. It's so funny, and it just. I don't know. There's something really strangely appealing about it, and his whole conversation about the end, about uh, having you know, I don't know, 16 women for every man, and they all, of course, are going to have to be sexually appealing, and whatever. it's just like.
0: Mind I can walk.
1: Yeah, right. The the most perfect uh, way to end this film, right before the nuclear annihilation. <laughs> the
0: The funniest thing, because I we we talked about this leading up to this film and all of the uh, all of the things that Kubrick clearly brought into, strangely borrowed from Fritz Lang, is over the last many weeks we've been talking about Fritz Lang. This is the thing that I found funniest about that whole conversation, that whole line of inquiries. That, in fact, that black glove, as it turns out, was Kubrick's because he apparently had a crazy fear of the bright set lights actually burning his skin so he was the one who wore those gloves he didn't actually write those gloves into as a part of the character which is funny because it turns out he wasn't borrowing from Fritz Lang for his characters he was borrowing them for himself <laughs> <That's> so funny <laughs>
1: Well, I will say, in his defense, set lights are really hot. Yes, oh, that's <laughs> Somebody true. who has burned himself on them.
0: Uh, okay, how about, um, uh, how about George C. Scott, General Buck Turgidson? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Mm, yep. More with the names, There it right? is, Turgid the Bombast. He is the, the uh, jingoist uh, uh, commander who is sitting around the uh, war room table. He is uh, uh, strongly advocating for a first strike offense.
1: And I believe that they modeled him a little bit after General Curtis LeMay. You know, just this whole idea of this general who is so excited about what you can do with these bombs and just how good his team is and stuff that it's almost like they don't completely pay attention to the realities of what it actually means in the end. And I just love that about him. He's so uh, funny. He, and I think that the my favorite stuff is his, uh, f- you know, concern that the president is going to let the Russian ambassador into the war room. <laughs> He'll see the big board. The big board. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he's a child on a playground. He is, and that's what I love about him. I mean, he even takes a call from his girlfriend while he's talking to the president, and he has this whole conversation about, "No, I love you, baby." You know, it's just, it's, it's so like. Inappropriate and it seems so perfect for that kind of like that youthful person who just doesn't, you know, is, it's all id. Yeah, he never <laughs>
0: aged. And, and, you know, to watch him when he talks about how long the B 52s can fly when damaged, about how oh, those big birds, those big birds, <laughs> so far, uh, is, I mean, I, I feel like I've had those conversations. I was that guy and I was seven years old and I was talking about Optimus Prime. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? It's perfect. It is just perfect. Uh, Sterling Hayden comes out of retirement as Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper. I think it's kind of retirement in
1: quotes. (laughs) Like so many of these actors who go into retirement. I mean, he had been working um, pretty solidly all the way up through the the 50s into 1960. And then, uh, yeah, he came out of retirement to do this in 64. And then he worked uh, all the way until 82. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I don't know if this just rejuvenated his passion. Yeah, it's or a second, if, second wind. Yeah, right, exactly. Or if he really never intended on really retiring. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, he he takes this insane character and just goes with it. And the, the the cigar chewing, the the way that he delivers his lines about his precious bodily fluids and denying the women that he sleeps with of his essence— Uh, You know, it's, there is nothing that he does as a joke. It is all so 100% serious and that's why it works so well. It's, you know, he does everything whole hog as if he really believes about this fluoridation and that the Russians are trying trying to poison their bodily fluids. And it works so well. I, I don't know. I, I, like it, it, I know there was this whole concept back then about like fluoridation, and, and there were these, uh, these groups that actually believed these things. I think it was really interesting that Kubrick and the writers chose to kind of pull that in as kind of the, the person who essentially causes all of this to happen.
0: Uh, we've already talked a little bit about Slim Pickens. He was fantastic riding the, um, uh, riding the weapon all the way into the doomsday landscape
1: the the word that I heard is that he pretty much never had a sense that this was a comedy and that he was you know doing it just completely seriously um because you know he, he thought that it was kind of more serious and and uh uh yeah it just I don't know I find that really funny
0: that I find got... yeah that even all the way to the last bit when he's riding the bomb yeah go slim fun seeing James Earl Jones.
1: His first film. Yeah. It's uh, it's pretty interesting to see him popping up here. Uh, and I, I you know I like that um he is kind of got this um this kind of role that kind of questions uh, <laughs> whether they should do this. He's the voice of reason. Yeah. He's the one who's like are you sure this isn't just a test? Which is nice. I mean, it's it's a bit part. Um, yeah. It's but and obviously in retrospect, it's great being able to see where uh, Jones goes from here because his part is is relatively otherwise forgettable. But it's it's it is nice to see him popping up in there.
0: Keenan Wynn plays Colonel Bat Guano again
1: with the names Bat Guano. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't, so I, I don't even know what to say about that name. I was, <laughs>
1: Oh, it's so funny! It is just so stinking funny. It's, yeah. it's
0: a funny bit part for him. He was he's been working since the uh, you know since the early forties, uh, and yet this film it's not a it's not a huge part for him um, by nineteen sixty four, uh, but really funny, dense but loyal. He's one of
1: those guys that uh, it's like I know I've seen him in stuff. I mean, looking through his credits, even just TV shows I was watching in the 80s, like Manimal, which (laughs) was a show I loved. (laughs) Yes. Fall Guy, Hardcastle, and McCormick. He was also in The Return of the Man from UNCLE, um, The Love Boat. He was in the movie The Last Unicorn, The Greatest American Hero, Fantasy Island, like all things that I was watching. So inevitably, I saw him in some of these things. Um, But looking back in his early career, oh, he was in Piranha. How funny. Looking back earlier in his career, it's like, what is it uh, in his career that is kind of where I know him from? And I just, I don't know. I'm trying to pinpoint it. Where do you know him from?
0: Well, I, you know, he is that uh, he's that face because he was in so many shows, particularly through the '80s that I was watching. Right, you already mentioned the Love Boat, but like Saint Elsewhere and Taxi and Quincy, and you mentioned Manimal, but Hardcastle and McCormick. McCormick, are you kidding me? I loved that show. He was that guy through the, this period where I was always in front of the TV. That that was the face and And so i I absolutely recognized him immediately. I don't remember him from any particular like giant movie role. no, I don't either, but the fall guy, right, you know, so yeah it, it was he is just he was ever present two hundred and seventy eight credits, most of them uh were television,
1: yeah, and he pops up like in once upon a time in the West, but again, it's kind of a bit part, I think it probably was mostly. Uh, the stuff in the TV stuff in the eighties that I recognize him from he
0: was in Black Moon Rising, uh, written by John Carpenter, uh, starring Tommy Lee Jones, Linda Hamilton, and Robert Vaughn. There you go, Linda Hamilton I love it all right uh, and let's see we had Tracy Reed. As Miss Scott, the only woman in the film.
1: Not only does she play the woman who is uh, with uh, Turgidson, she also is uh, acted as the uh, model for the Playboy centerfold uh, that we see uh, um, Kong looking at in the plane. She is that model. And uh, she was actually Carol Reed's niece.
0: She has this, uh, this, this funny bit. She's talking about how she got the job. She says, Stanley said, your body isn't too bad, so you have the job.
1: Yeah, he's a it's a it's a bikini role, so I'm gonna have to see you in a yeah, bikini. <laughs> right,
0: right. Peter Bull pres, plays the Russian ambassador Alexei D. Sedesky. His stuff in this film I just love so much. Um
1: he actually was in the African Queen. He's the captain of the other boat. Oh and, wow and, and talking about um uh the the Great Escape, which we just talked about, he is in Tom Jones. <laughs> yep, yeah, the movie that <laughs> That, that one best picture so, that year that we were
0: talking about. So, so terrible. Yeah. That's really funny. funny. He also has quite a few credits. He's worked up through 1983. Well, I love that he ended up in
1: Yellowbeard as yeah. Queen Anne. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: he was terrific. Uh, and that, that really wraps up the major uh, major cast members that, that were terrifically exciting in this film and funny. Uh, what about getting it made? Let's talk about Failsafe.
1: Yeah, so uh so Sydney Lumet was making a little movie called Failsafe right around the same time. And Failsafe, it is it's another uh kind of movie about the, the you know, nuclear uh, uh possibilities of a nuclear war. And uh it's it is uh yeah, American planes are sent to deliver a nuclear attack on Moscow, but it's a mistake due to an electrical malfunction. Can an all-out war be averted? Uh, Lumet was directing this film And, um, it was, it was just one of those things where it's just like, I mean, it's based on a book. Kubrick felt, you know, this is way too similar to, um, to my, uh, film. He sued him. He sued the production because he felt that, um, that they were doing it purposefully because, uh, trying to kind of ride the coattails and, uh, also, just to kind of slow it down, and and he succeeded. He ended up uh, pushing the release date for sale fa- safe, *Fail Safe* back. I think almost a full year after uh, after his film was released, or maybe not a full year, but like at least at least toward much later in the year, so that it uh, it didn't affect his release date. Because I think they were both initially pushing to release the end of '63. And uh, yeah, they uh, his ended up releasing early '64, and theirs released I think toward the end of '64. And it didn't do that well. It didn't end up being the big hit that everybody was hoping. And I don't know how much the lawsuit had to do with that. I think Kubrick probably uh, says it's all because of him.
0: Yeah, and would this have been, would that have been the film we're talking about? I doubt it because it wasn't very funny. No.
1: Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's listed as a drama thriller. Yeah. Totally different.
0: The impact of Kennedy's assassination uh, were pretty powerful on this film. I believe uh, that this actually—that it happened right when the film was due to, to premiere.
1: It was scheduled to premiere on November 22nd. Yeah. 63. Uh, and, yeah, they had to kind of push the whole thing back because of the assassination, And, um, you know, it's the end of the year, it's the awards and all that. They were like, well, uh, when should we release it? It ended up not getting released in 63. It was pushed to January 64, uh, much to the chagrin of the people involved. But, you know, it was was one of those things. It's like this is a film about a president who has to make a decision about, uh, you know, if he's going to start a nuclear war or not. And Kennedy just was killed and he went through this whole thing with Cuba. And, you know, is it appropriate to release this so close to his death? So they really had to kind of, you know, deliberate on that. And they had to change a line in the film. There's a line when Kong, he's going through the, uh, the provisions for his crew as far as what they, what they got in their little war packs. And he's kind of reading and he's like, heck, a fella could have a pretty good time in, Ve- in Vegas with this stuff. Uh, originally it was Dallas and they had to have uh, Slim come back in and actually dub that line.
0: Yeah, you can see it it's, once you yeah. once you know it's Dallas, you can see it pretty clearly.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah.
0: The cinematography is uh, Gilbert Taylor.
1: I like the look of the film. I love the look of the war room. I think the uh, the darkness in there looks great. And also I think that the film has kind of a newsreel feel overall, which I think works really nicely. Um Weirdly, and you know, I mean, Kubrick has never been a fan of like real widescreen stuff. Weirdly, the the new um, the latest Blu-ray is released just sixteen by nine, but uh, Kubrick released it. I think it's 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 actually one of those weird films where they it's it's it the aspect ratio actually changes during the course of the film. I remember back in my LaserDisc days, um, the aspect ratio would go from one point three three to one to one point eight five to one. Um, over the course of the film, depending on what was happening. And um, I can't remember which scenes, but I know Criterion is actually releasing a a new Blu-ray version of it soon, and I'm assuming they are going to actually release it in the proper aspect ratio as opposed to just the 16 by 9 chopping stuff off.
0: I also watched the just 16 by 9 straight up. Where did it change? Do you know? I
1: I think it's the War Room. I want to say all the the 1.33 to 1 is all the War Room stuff, Um, I, I think. And I don't know why Kubrick um, chose to do that. Uh, I don't know if it was, you know, something having to do with the film stock was cheaper or what. But you know, Kubrick was never a fan of anything really wide. He always liked his stuff, you know, relatively, relatively narrow. Uh,
0: the uh, generally, it's it is just lovely. The the uh, uh, particular some of the stories about getting the thing shot. Uh, you know, the second unit shot all the the plates for the. Rear projection of the B-52 over the Arctic Circle and uh, apparently didn't know that there's a base up there. And so that the U.S. would launch their fighter jets to actually escort them to the uh, icy surface because they thought they were spies. Right. (laughs) Given the movie they were making, I find that ironic. So funny. Uh, so just little things, but the uh, but they end up being gorgeous plates. And actually, the the projection sort of composite actually looks really good. I like it. I think
1: it's a lot of fun. Even even when the bomb, uh, the whole bomb drop, and, and as he kind of plummets to the ground, the way that that kind of, uh, he zooms in on that ground behind him, I think it always looks kind of just like, you know, he's going to hit a map on the wall. But at the same time, I think it still is pretty effective.
0: I do too. I, you know, they ended up doing a, it was, a, that was just a, a crane um, shot. They're just backing away from him and then optically reducing him in, in the frame. Um, and, and it's still, you know, it's, it's a funny thing because it's kind of a cheap solution to a, a complex problem, just in terms of physics. It was a giant bomb, right? It was like 50 feet long. And so to make it move was challenging. But it ends up creating this composite of the crane coming back and the rear proje- or the projection behind him ends up creating some of the most iconic uh, promotional material in film history. Right, him riding that bomb is legendary,
1: and that uh, that shot almost didn't happen because Kubrick was like, "Well, we have to, you know, we want to see the bomb drop," and they had not designed the set to do that. <laughs> They actually, they had two days to figure out a solution. And so that was the solution they came up with. And I think it ended up working. And it's it's funny how that's the sort of, it's, it's like, you know, the shark in Jaws, how it was broken so that you don't see it very often, but it ended up making it, the film better. Yeah, right. Same thing here, because they had to kind of do it the way that they did it. They ended up creating something that ended up being kind of the iconic moment for the film.
0: Let's talk about production design, Ken Adams and Peter Merton, uh, art direction.
1: Ken Adams yeah. uh, anybody who uh, knows his work uh, must be familiar with the James Bond franchise because he he has uh, kind of a knack for really big sets and uh, whether it's you know the the evil lair in the volcano or the war room I mean uh, he really knows what he's doing in creating these these massive sets that are just so fascinating to look at I love the war room set here it's just so much uh, so so fun it's such an interesting idea um, you know, it took 150 tradesmen to build it. It was 130 feet wide by 100 feet long by 35 feet high. The big board took 10 miles of electric cable to light it. It's it's insane, um, and you know, and it's just iconic. I mean, he created a totally iconic room for this film
0: the uh, The table itself was twenty two feet in diameter, and he had it covered in green felt because apparently Kubrick wanted the actors to feel like they were at a a giant poker game, a political poker game, uh, which you know apparently um, Adams and Merton said, you know, it's you're not going to be able to see there. There's nothing else. There's no other symbols that are going to make it look like it's a poker game. It's just going to be. He said that's okay. I just want yes. it to feel that way.
1: Right, it's black and white. you're yeah. not going to be able to
0: tell. It's yeah, creepy, unless but... you unless you have poker, unless you have playing cards on a green felt table, you can't. You don't think of it as a green felt table. But he wanted it to be that way. So it was a giant twenty foot, two foot diameter table covered in felt uh, to make that war room. The uh, the B-52 set is one that I find really interesting. That was made. They they had no help from the U.S. military, and so um, Adams and and Merton they had a book cover, the cover of a book which had a, a photo of a B-52 pilot sitting in the cockpit, and so they had about uh, a half side of the, of the cockpit. The rest is entirely manufactured of that B-52, and word is uh, they brought the Air Force, members of the Air Force, in to see an early screening of the film, and uh, that caused quite a commotion, because apparently the rest of the B-52 was uh, almost perfect, that they That's thought right. they had to be getting uh, information from inside the military.
1: That's what I heard. I thought it was so interesting that uh, they they made it so perfect. I mean, it almost sounded like Kubrick and Adams were going to be arrested yes. because uh, you know, the military was acting like they were giving out trade secrets from it, which is, uh, I, I guess it speaks highly of Adams' uh, design abilities.
0: Uh, hair and makeup, Stuart Freeborn makeup, Barbara Ritchie hair. The only hair that really stands out to me is Strangelove himself. He looks like Eraserhead.
1: Well, I wrote those down because specifically when an actor is playing multiple roles, there are always those little bits and pieces that they have to kind of help them differentiate. And I, and and the actor has to inhabit them well, but it also takes a good hair makeup department to really do that. And I thought Freeborn and Richie did a great job with the kind of the balding cap for uh Sellers when he's muffling of the the little bit of extra nose and the teeth when he's playing uh, Mandrake, and then of course the the kind of the the bigger hair when he's playing uh, uh, Strange Love. I thought they did a great job, and I think that between them, paired with Sellers, um, that trio was able to really work well to kind of create a uh, three completely unique characters.
0: Um, speaking of crazy effects, uh, did you write this down just because of you wanted to say Vivers and Ouija? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I I think that's really funny. I hadn't <laughs> planned on saying Beavers and Ouija, but why wouldn't you now why that uh, you? now that it's been said?
0: <laughs> that's that'd be Wally Beavers and Arthur Ouija Feelig behind the effects.
1: That's Ouija, the
0: photographer. Yes,
1: um, that I thought was uh, interesting. That they actually brought him on uh, onto this as an advisor for the effects, uh, kind of an uncredited advisor. Um, uh, sellers actually. Uh, used Ouija's speaking pattern and his accent as a little bit of the influence for Doctor Strangelove's character because if you hear Ouija speak, it really kind of sounds like Strangelove.
0: And you know, this was another one uh, that we didn't talk about the the um, the uh, what Strangelove was was really based on. And and I think I was one going into this film thinking, oh, Strangelove was based on Kissinger. Um, I, I, for years I've thought that, I don't know, I, apparently that's a common thing and I fell for it, but it was actually, uh, Wernher von Braun, uh, Herman Kahn and John von Neum- Neumann who are all, um, uh, military scientists for the German military science scientists behind, you know, World War II and then Ouija's we- voice. Right. Um, kind of an amalgam character. Title design. We, you already mentioned Pablo ferro uh, and the fantastic titles,
1: yeah, I think it was smart. Uh, he and Kubrick were talking about the way to design the titles. They loved this whole idea of these planes uh, basically having sex in the air. But he was having he was struggling trying to figure out where to place the titles because it kept distracting your eye from the 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 act of love happening in midair, and then having to look over to read titles. And so he came up with this whole idea of doing these really <laughs> pencil thin lettering of the big and small words. Uh, right over the the image and um, i i think that was really a fascinating way to go and it's just it is kind of iconic but yeah pharaoh is just one of those guys i mean geez he worked on uh thomas crown affair with kind of the split screen beginning um he's worked on everything from um uh, beetlejuice to uh to live and die in la um stop making sense uh, the adams family men in black i mean he's still around he's still busy doing stuff he did a lot of stuff with Hal Ashby. In fact, even being there, um, you know, he kind of uh, helped uh, in that film. So, a really interesting guy who's just he—he he has a great eye for this sort of thing.
0: Did you find the typo?
1: I—I—I—I I, I, I know I've seen it before, uh, before it was uh, pointed out to me in the little making of. But I, I know I had mm-hmm. remembered seeing it there.
0: I had never seen it. I had never seen. It. I never noticed it. And now I feel like a dummy. It's not based on the book. It would, of course, be based on the book. Right. right. And he forgot a D. Yep. Funny. Um, I-, I can't believe it, but you actually have an IMFDB for this one. <laughs> right. I did not see this coming. Well, this is, of I mean, course, the
1: Internet Movie Firearms Database. You gotta love the uh, the big uh, the big guns. That uh, I mean. <laughs> Feels so inappropriate talking about it now, but uh, oh, yeah, it's awful. Yeah. There's the big Browning that um, that um, uh, Ripper is using that he hides in his golf bag apparently that <laughs> that he pulls out to uh, use and just kind of hold as he's as he's mowing down all these these invaders. It's just so silly. I mean, that was really the only reason I put it on there because I thought that was funny to point that one out.
0: I think it's funny enough to add to the notes.
1: The music is interesting in this film. Um, Laurie Johnson does the music. And I'd you know, i have to really kind of listen through again to pinpoint anything that, that isn't part of When Johnny Comes Marching Home. Because uh, that seems to be the vast majority of the music that she did is just taking that tune and kind of rejiggering it over and over um, and, and more intensely for the, uh, every time we cut to the B-52 as they're on their run to drop their bomb.
0: I think so. There was, you know, there were the other, um, like pop songs of the time, right? Uh, we'll we'll meet again, and um, but in terms of the score and and, and some of the like symphonic sexy time music, which I think is tried little tenderness, is what I heard. Oh, that's right, that's yeah. right. I get it now.
1: Uh, you know how how. Uh, PR companies try to come up with creative ways to get tickets sold. Well, the, for this one, they came up with the idea to to give out theater pocket uh, radioactivity uh, calculators. Those these, those, those <laughs> are the ones that Doctor Strangelove pulls out to determine like how long the the fallout is going to be to determine how when they'll be able to come back up. They yeah. gave those to theaters to give out as promos and at contests and all that sort of thing. And I think that's hilarious. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. <laughs> Here,
1: have a pocket radioactivity calculator. <laughs> Bosley Cruther. He was the the uh the film critic for the New York Times, I believe. Um uh, he he was a uh one of those people who this film came out and uh he he just ripped it. He totally didn't get it. He thought that this film was uh just a terrible thing to release and disrespectful and all that sort of stuff. Um and then he saw it again, like, I, I don't know, I, I think it was one of those movies that kind of, you know, people, it, it you know, like I said at the beginning, they didn't necessarily get it right away. It took a little time. He ended up doing a re-review of it, um, and uh, he ended up liking it. He ended up uh, kind of praising it for what Kubrick was doing here. And I think that's uh, pretty interesting for a film critic to actually kind of make a complete turn like that.
0: I have to read his opening paragraph of his initial review. May I? Do it. Stanley Kubrick's new film called Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Wearing and Love the Bomb, is beyond any question the most shattering, sick joke I've ever come across. And I say that with full recollection of some of the grim ones I've heard from Mort Saul, some of the cartoons I've seen by Charles Adams, and some of the stuff I've read in Mad Magazine. (laughs) Yep. Those were simpler times. Am I right?
1: Those were. Those were, yes. <laughs> this indeed.
0: is such a disgusting movie because it pales in comparison to Mad Magazine. Oh dear. Too how to do how to do for awards. This is a great film. It should have won all the awards, right? It should have. Boy, I wish it did.
1: Um this was one of those films that I you know, I, I I'm wondering if I mean this was a January release, which typically is kind of the dumping ground, but because of the Uh, assassination of Kennedy at the end of uh, 63. I'm wondering if it kind of, you know, gave people a little more uh, leeway as far as knowing why things got pushed to 64. But this film did get nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best uh, Adapted Screenplay, and Best Lead Actor, uh, Peter Sellers. Unfortunately, it didn't win anything. The winners that year were My Fair Lady, um, which is not one of my favorite films, won Best Picture, um, Best Director for George Cukor and Best Actor for Rex Harrison. And Beckett by Edward Onhalt won Best Adapted Screenplay. So, yeah, it lost all of its uh, awards, but it did receive a number of other awards. It won another 15 awards or 15 wins and had four more nominations. So, you know, I, it's one of those films that I think some people got it, some people yeah. didn't. Like the BAFTAs, they were all over it.
0: Well, the, you know, the British they they get sellers. <laughs> yes, they do. Yes, they do. Uh well, any sense of a a remake reboot? When are we going to get to see this again?
1: Kubrick 2 or Strange Love 2? Strange Love 2, yeah. Yeah. Actually, I think it's interesting that in 95 Kubrick actually brought in Terry Southern to script a sequel titled Son of Strange Love. And he apparently had Terry Gilliam in mind to direct. Uh, they never finished the script. Uh, they started laying out the index cards of the basic story structure. Um, but then Terry Southern died uh, later that year. And um, But yeah, I guess the idea was largely going to be set in underground bunkers where Dr. Strangelove had taken refuge with a group of women. <laughs> uh, it'd be very that sounds like a terrible movie. <laughs> it does. It really probably should never have been made i'm surprised that kubrick even uh, came up with it but yeah gilliam actually said you know he he had been told about all this after kubrick died and he's just like i never knew about it until after he died but i would have loved to so uh, i mean you know i guess with kubrick's blessing i would be happy to go direct it too (laughs) even if it was going to be bad just to say hey kubrick told me to
0: kubrick told me to (laughs) that's actually that's one of the things my kids say when they get in trouble (laughs) dad kubrick told me to uh ope
1: i love that the coen brothers kind of throw that in every so now and then again not too often i definitely remember it in raising arizona Uh, but it's just one of those weird little references that they have and it's to this film
0: how did it do on the numbers if it didn't win the awards at least tell me it made back its money,
1: uh, yeah, it was released like i said january twenty ninth nineteen sixty four um It cost about one point eight million dollars to make um so you know it is a modest budget that was about adjusted about thirteen and a half million um it ended up making domestically about nine point five million. I couldn't find any um any international figures, uh but you know, so that would be about an adjusted uh total gross of about seventy point eight million. Um, so, you know, it, it made its money back. This film ended up making about $610,000 per finish minute adjusted.
0: Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, not too bad. It's number 90 on our list. List that they paid for the table. <laughs> right. Uh, I think it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com and uh, search, slash the next reel and then search for Dr. Strangelove. Uh, you'll see it in our uh, most recent uh, uh, rankings there if you're keeping up with the show, and uh, add it to your own list. And let's see, let's compare numbers. Let's compare digits. Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Wearing the Bomb and Love the Bomb versus...
1: First up, the Oh Brother block, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?
0: I'm going to tell you, Pete. This is a tough one for me.
1: It's not tough in any way, shape, or form for me. I watched this film, and I I'm really conflicted right now because I'm starting to feel like do I have a new favorite movie? I don't what? know. It's what? possible. It's possible. <laughs> I haven't committed that to myself yet, but it is possible. Let's just so see how it me, plays out. It's Strange Love.
0: It's Strange Love. It's Strange Love.
1: All right. Dr. Strange Love or The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Oh, Strange Love. Absolutely. Uh, Strange Love or Fisher King.
0: Uh, Strange Love for me. I Brilliant.
1: Terry Gilliam, but yeah, Strange Love. Strange Love. Oh, see? Strange Love or Brazil. Wow! Right now, I, I I I'm I I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I'm going to say Strange Love. I yeah, yeah, I'm Strange Love. I'm really shocked at myself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I feel um. like I'm watching a chrysalis <laughs> <I'm> watching
1: <laughs> <Rebirth>. <laughs> emerge oh, from the man. chrysalis. Strange Love or Touch of Evil?
0: Oh uh, dear, we're. We're getting right up in there, aren't we? I'm Strangelove. Oh, jeez. All right. I got on this train, Andy. I'm going to ride it to the end.
1: There you are. There, Yes, you are. Dr. Strangelove or seven.
0: Seven. I can't
1: do it. I can't. I'm doing Strangelove. Here we go. Okay. One, One two, two,
0: three. Three, paper. paper. Oh, tense. <laughs> it is tense. <laughs> One, One, two. two Three. Paper. (laughs) One, two, three, rock.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One, two, three,
0: three, paper. (laughs) You are kidding me now. One, One, two, two, three, three, rock. Paper. (laughs) (laughs) Did you just cheat?
1: Did you say it? I said it at the exact same time. There's okay. No cheating here. All right. Well, thank you. That's got to be it, right? No, Strange Love or Mr. Smith goes to Washington. <laughs> I'm strange, strange Love, love? baby. Seriously? I am Strange Love. Like I, I said, this might be my new favorite movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just, I'll just flat out tell you right now. This is number one on my my next real flick chart right now. <laughs> is
0: it, it is. It is. Oh. Oh. Mind blown. I know. Okay, we got to do it. I got I, I to. Over over Mr. Bite. Smith. Okay. Yes. One.
1: But he's a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> he's gone to more yeah. school than Mr. Smith. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One, One,
0: two,
1: two three, three. scissors. Oh, you won. Suck it. Oh, that's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> this is like this was really, really
0: delicate, oh, I'm sorry that you're right. that was insensitive. <laughs> Andy, would you please suck it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> there you go, much better. that's it. We are at number four. Number if it were up to me, this four. would be number one <laughs> it is not, not up is, to you this is up, this is above network now for me. this is like the top of the chart.
0: wow, <sighs> Andy. I watched wow. this
1: like three times before before we did this show <laughs> I couldn't stop re-watching it
0: i I feel like it was a it was a it, you put up a good fight it was a principled loss in your case and uh, I appreciate it I also love this film number four ain't that bad it we have a film that broke the top five Andy and that's hard to come by
1: it is it really is
0: all right celebrate the little things. I will. And not your <laughs> personal stunning loss.
1: Um, I'll cry myself to sleep, but I'll be okay tomorrow.
0: I'm going to go ahead and assume that this is a five-star film on Letterboxd?
1: This is a six-star film. Right? <laughs> I was going to say, have you written a strongly
0: worded letter about the number of stars? That's right. It no, is yes. it's also a five-star yep. film for me. Perfect, perfect, Yep. Now, where do we go... From here, do you have any idea what we're doing here from our vacation?
1: Well, believe it or not, vacation must come to an end.
0: Ah, curse you.
1: I know. I am sorry. We're going to be entering a fun little series. I, I, it should be interesting. It's definitely going to be covering a wide variety of films. This is going to be a disease films series. We have uh, eight eight films. so We're going to be talking about two full months of disease.
0: This and is good.
1: It's going to be a wide variety. We're starting off with The Omega Man. Uh, which should be an interesting <laughs> one to kick it off with, a little dose of Charlton Heston 70s craziness. Yeah. Uh, then we've got The Andromeda Strain, The Crazies, Outbreak, Serenity, Children of Men, Blindness, Ending with Contagion.
0: I, I cannot tell you the number of people who have asked me why we ha- don't have Serenity on our list. So I'm telling you people, August 5th, Serenity joins the list. I'm excited about that. Oh yeah, it's going to be good. Yeah. Very excited about that. This is awesome. It is a great series. I think I love disease stories second only to my love of zombie stories. Really. I mean, it's, <laughs> I, and I recognize they're, really they're, all, they're of, very similar. Yeah, they're, they're very the same, similar. really. <laughs> but, but when you look at movies like, you know, Outbreak is definitely, I mean, people don't, they don't get crazy. They just melt from the inside out, right? I mean, it's yeah. just a different kind of a vibe. Yes, yes. Uh, but, uh, but in this case, they're oh, right up there. I, I forgive an awful lot on these stories. I really do. That's a shame. It makes me a, a, a weak person.
1: <laughs> well, it's going to be a fun series to talk about. So it sure I'm definitely is. Looking forward to it. So yeah, that's uh, that's the next thing that will be uh, kicking off right as soon as vacation is over.
0: Looking forward to it. Between now and then, I I don't even need to tell you because I've spent the last two weeks in bed.
1: Well, I've been to One World Fair, a picnic, and a rodeo, and that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard to come over a set of earphones.
0: Amazon giveth, Andrew.
1: As Amazon always doeth.
0: I have a one star from Susan who watched this movie just a few months ago, February 2016. I don't know. Maybe we've spent the last uh, uh, two hours laughing too hard, but sadly, that's how this hits me. (laughs) She says, too real. Not for the timid or or those worried about the lives of their descendants.
1: Wow! I know that's review straight out of like 1964. I had no idea this was a comedy, and I'm terrified. (laughs) Right? I'm gonna go hide (laughs) under my desk and duck and cover.
0: (laughs) The hammer and sickle falls. (laughs) Oh my god! Oh, that is brilliant. That's brilliant.
1: Okay. Well, I also have a one star. Worst movie of the 1960s says Dan C.
0: There have been some sadly bad movies out of the 1960s. I'm not sure that's good to say. No, I mean, you know, Tom Jones, maybe. (laughs) I feel so... (laughs) I
1: I shouldn't say that. It's been so long since I've seen Tom Jones. Oh, it's terrible. I need to rent it again just to relive its uh,
0: you don't judge blindly
1: (laughs) well I I already did so Uh, Dan says I didn't see it when it came out but was aware of the hoopla seeing it 50 years later it is one of the worst movies ever made Peter Sellers didn't fit in at all in any of his roles. The special effect, man riding the bomb, was ludicrous, as though filmed by a three-year-old. And the storyline was as scientifically bogus as any movie could be. Yes, I know it was supposed to be a comedy, but it turned out to be an absurd, unfunny fantasy. I wonder if the tiresome George C. Scott was ever embarrassed by his ridiculous role. I think he was. He was tricked by Kubrick into playing the role over the top. I like how he tries to kind of make like justify his dumb review here by throwing in some facts.
0: Yes, right. Well, that was good and and it, right after he insulted the cinematographer accusing him of being a 3-year-old. Yes. That That's is. a shame. Thanks Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022,